Welcome to Lab in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kathleen Durkin of Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. And I'm Devin Powell of the Zuckerman Institute. This podcast is going to explore the daily lives of researchers at our Brain Science Institute who are launching new efforts to combat COVID-19. You may have heard that science is shutting down. Labs across the country are closing their doors because of coronavirus. But there are some people at our institute who are still hard at work. Researchers who normally spend their time studying the brain are pivoting to combat coronavirus. Like me, I normally manage magnetic resonance imaging projects that scan the brain and the body. And I normally make videos about brain science as part of the communications team. But now we are also creating this podcast. So today's episode will focus on some young researchers who have launched a new project to create protective equipment for healthcare workers out in the field. Our first episode explores how these researchers went from studying the brain to setting up a small-scale factory in only 48 hours. We talked to PhD candidate Leslie Seibener, who usually studies how the brain controls movements, work that could help us understand movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. I am in my fourth year of my PhD in Rui Costa's lab, and I study um, motor learning. So basically, that's how you're able to learn skilled movements, like learning how to serve a tennis ball. When her lab closed a couple of weeks ago, she started spending her time obsessively checking the news until she found a better outlet for her energy and talents. There was about a week and a half after I had stopped going into lab where I wasn't doing much of anything. And what was really great is that I started seeing this surge of activity within the Columbia community. So at the medical campus, there's this group that's called the Columbia Researchers Against COVID-19. There's so many projects, so many people are working together at Columbia and even on a more, on a smaller scale, even within the Zuckerman Institute itself. The main project that I'm in charge of is kind of manning the 3D printing farm that we have set up on the first floor of the Zuckerman Institute. So I'm sitting in the 3D print farm. Yeah, it just very, very ghost town feel here. Rachel Clary is a member of Ellen Lumpkin's lab, currently working with the Zuckerman Institute's Wes Gruber. She's talking to us from a giant glass room on the first floor of the Zuckerman Institute. It's the Ed Lab or the Education Lab, and usually it's a really busy space. This is where we hold public programs about brain science for kids and students and for the local community. But today that giant glass room feels much emptier. It's just one person surrounded by a host of 3D printers. These machines are spitting out plastic to build 3D objects layer by layer. We have 10 printers and I can see they're all, uh, basically they all have a nozzle from the top and then there's a little platform jiggling around and then the nozzle also moves to, to shape the print. So it starts from nothing and then gets built up. So I can see right now that all of the printers are, are jiggling, except for one just finished. So I'll scrape it once we get off the call. It's probably between 10 and 12 hours of active printing per day right now. All of this activity allows the 3D printing farm to make regular deliveries of personal protective equipment, or PPE, to healthcare workers in New York. Leslie continues. 
we've partnered with an incredible grassroots organization called NYC Makes PPE to 3D print various items to serve um, medical professionals and other underserved organizations in this crisis. One of the worst things that's happening inside of hospitals right now is that they are running out of personal protective equipment or PPE. And so these are things like face masks, and those can be the fancy N95 ones or just regular surgical masks, but it's also things like goggles or face shields or clean gowns to put over their normal scrubs. We are just an incredible short supply. So the actual physical pieces that we're producing right now are part of a face shield. And so that's different than a face mask. And so what a face shield is, is exactly what it kind of sounds like. This like piece of plastic in front of your face to protect you from any sort of splatter, which you can imagine in a hospital room could be very messy. We have practitioners who are wearing one mask all day, despite whatever materials might encounter those masks, which includes a lot of liquids. Just having the shield itself will prevent a lot of splatter and also just reduce the load on that one mask that these practitioners get to use per day. So making headbands for face shields isn't how Rachel used to spend her time as a PhD candidate, but she believes that her scientific training helps. I normally study touch-sensitive neurons in the skin and especially how they maintain their architecture over time. As much as I'm not a doctor, I still got into research to help humans. Many of my friends from grad school have been MD-PhDs. Thinking about them, especially some of my closest friends who are going to potentially be there on the front line without protective equipment, really gives me a little bit more fire to try and find some way to help. And it's made me feel just a little bit better that I'm not just staring at my computer pretending to work all day while I am inside freaking out about what's happening. The 3D print farm started with students and engineers at the Zuckerman Institute emailing each other and calling each other and organizing online. And from there, it just really took off. Leslie told us this origin story. Rick Warren, my peer, in my PhD program, he and Tanya Tabachnik, the head of the instrumental corps, they kind of started thinking about all these 3D printers that were in the institute and what we could do with them. So I had this first call with Rick and the next 48 hours was just like this whirlwind of grabbing printers and bringing them downstairs and getting everything set. We have one from the Sawtell lab, two from the Axel lab, one from the Costa lab, or maybe even two. I think there's one that lives here in the education center. What's fun about moving like 10 different 3D printers into one space and trying to produce the same item is that each printer has their own little idiosyncratic issues. We had to troubleshoot each one individually. This is the first week that we've been doing this, so we're figuring it out still. I was the first one that Leslie trained, so it was an experience for both of us to figure out how to train over Zoom. She had not yet written down things like the file names that we were supposed to be printing. 
So I just had to try one. It turned out to be the wrong one. And I have a pretty funny picture of basically a half like molten face visor because like the right side just, I don't know why it messed up, but it did. So it just is a completely garbled mess. The call for volunteers for the 3D farm was really spectacular and they have just rose to the occasion. And I'm not surprised. I have had so many amazing collaboration scientifically with people in the building that I knew that people would be really eager to, to be a part of something like this as well. We actually had more volunteers than we needed because another thing that we we're trying to balance is, is not having that many people in the space. We have many rules for when you are in the 3D print farm, but one of them is that only one person is allowed in there at a time. We wanted to find the sweet spot of being as productive as possible, but also making sure that we're not increasing the risk for any one person who's volunteering their time and willing to leave their kind of comfort of home right now and feels okay walking outside and going into this space. I just press print and then wait and hang out and get to enjoy the benefit of being back in this beautiful space again. Eileen Hartnett is the latest addition to the team. She manages the lab of Daphne Shohami, a scientist who studies memory, learning, and decision-making. What I normally work on is fMRI study of food choice behavior in patients with anorexia nervosa. When this email came out that we could help with making face shields, I also thought, like, great, that's something that we can do. There's so much we can't control, but there's this one small thing we can. I hope that this is helping people. I really do. But also selfishly, it definitely helped me to be part of something that's hopefully making an impact in what's going on right now. Like most people, I miss my family. We don't know, you know, when we can all see each other again, but I miss the lab family too in that environment. And honestly, just returning to the building was very calming. It, it was a nice, a nice relief to be there. We asked Rachel what she missed from her pre-pandemic life. I was a big fan of taking scenic routes to and from the Zuckerman Institute as part of my daily exercise routine. So, you know, a nice long walk along the river. It is nice to leave my apartment a couple days per week and come here and still be technically isolating. We're all feeling the drive to try and help right now. Probably partially because we are affiliated with a hospital, so we are getting more peaks behind the screen of what it's really like than the average citizen. I just encourage the community to, to think about other things that they could do like this that might seem really minor, but I think at this point we've probably printed 300 face mask parts in just a week. So that's like 300 people that we're helping. For Leslie, the project is unlike anything she's experienced before. Even the way she thinks about time has changed. Now, I definitely feel a lot more pressure in a way that is really different than anything I've experienced. Because I think the nature of doing a PhD is kind of the exact opposite of what I'm doing right now. The PhD, it's this long journey where you decide to commit yourself for six years to one project. I've never had to deal with such an, I don't know, a high impact, short-term project. 
what we're producing is going to be in use hours after it leaves our hands. Even just like getting one thing out there and having it be on the face of one doctor that could potentially be the difference between them becoming infected or not. That is something that I think is just really, really gratifying right now. Thanks for listening to Lab in the Time of Coronavirus. Take a look at the show notes for links to all of the things we discussed. You can find all of our episodes at zuckermaninstitute.columbia.edu or on iTunes. Take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. That makes it easier for other people to find us. And special thanks to Rui Costa, Jennifer Ferris, the scientist who sat down with us for this episode, and the entire Zuckerman team. The music was provided by Miguel Zanon, jazz artist in residence at the Zuckerman Institute. And if you have any thoughts or any questions, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Zuckerman Brain. Our DMs are open. But before we go, Kathleen, I think you had one last question for our researchers today. What is the first thing you plan to do post-pandemic? See everyone that I miss. (laughs) Stop social distancing. Give everyone a hug. Two of my classmates defended their theses at the very beginning of our ramp down period. So we had Zoom parties for them, but it also does not feel like enough, especially for people who are moving on to their next chapter. So really looking forward to big rowdy park picnic, celebrating my friends' achievements after this is all over. Before everything started, I had a very lovely monthly dinner with a group of my closest six friends plus or minus a few guests and we would all crowd into one person's apartment to cook dinner and i would really love to be able to do that with them again sometime soon